Welcome to the Stolen Reality Podcast. This is where you belong. Welcome to the show, everybody. Thank you for joining me today. I got a pretty exciting episode today. The more I looked into it, the more exciting it got, which is always a good thing. Uh, If you are enjoying this show, the biggest thing that I can ask of you right now is just to tell your friends, uh, spread the word. You know, this is very early on creating this show, but it is a lot of work. I'm putting out four episodes a week right now between the interviews, uh, bit-isodes, infosodes, debates, and what a week episodes and the motivational Mondays. So I do all the research myself, I do all of the editing myself, all the recording, all the distribution, and I run the website at stolenreality.com. So it is is quite a bit of work. I'm pretty much doing this full time outside of my already full time life. Um, but I'm I'm loving it. I'm enjoying it. But if people aren't listening, I'm kind of kind of screaming into the void. So please just spread the word. Um, If you're on a platform that allows you to rate shows like Spotify or Apple iTunes or um, Amazon Music, go ahead and leave me a five-star review. It would help me out immensely. And I hope you enjoy today's episode. Derek Amato was a 39-year-old sales trainer from Denver, Colorado. While he was at home visiting his family in Sioux Falls, Idaho, he was playing at a pool with some of his friends. He had a friend toss him a football, and as he dove in to catch the football, he hit his head on the bottom of the pool, causing severe damage. So of course, they rushed him to the hospital, and he ends up with 35% hearing loss in one ear, memory loss, headaches, a lot of the symptoms of a normal TBI. But after he left the hospital is when it got really crazy. Five days later, Derek woke up in a fog, and he started seeing these black and white blocks all over in his vision. So he went over to his friend Rick Sturm's house to visit him, and while he was over there, he saw an electric keyboard. Derek had never played the piano before, and really didn't even have any musical training. I mean, he did a little bit of rhythm guitar in high school, but that was about it. Well, when he saw the keyboard, he recognized it as these black and white squares that he'd been seeing in his vision, so he sat down and started playing. Derek ended up playing for six hours. Even though he had no prior musical training, Derek had acquired a complex understanding of melodies, harmonies, and arpeggios, and became a musical savant overnight. So what happened to Derek is what's been commonly called brain injury savant syndrome, or acquired savant syndrome, prodigious savant, or accidental genius. This is when, following a TBI or a traumatic brain injury, somebody gains exceptional skills and a compulsive need to create. Of course, there's still a lot of bad things that go along with that, as with all TBIs. uh, Obsessive compulsive disorder is usually common in these cases, as well as uh, migraines, headaches, even lowered IQ. But the outlying factor is, is that these people seem to gain these amazing abilities without having any prior training or knowledge in the subject. These abilities usually fall into one of a few categories. Music, usually the piano or performance, like with Derek calendar calculating, which is where you're able to hear a specific date and photographically remember exactly what was happening at that date and time that you were told, mathematics, art, usually painting, sculpting, or drawing, and spatial or mechanical skills, like measuring distance without tools, being able to look across a parking lot and say, that's 14 feet, three inches. Less common categories are being able to tell time perfectly without a clock, knowledge in fields like statistics and neurophysiology, and strange sensory discrimination. 
So today I'm obviously going to be talking about brain injury savant syndrome. Um, before I do, the sources that I used to get all this information was from braininjurylawcenter.com, bestpsychologydegrees.org, the book The Future of the Mind by Michio Kaku, scientificamerican.com, readersdigest.com, and a particular episode of a Jordan Peterson podcast where he had interviewed a neuroscientist and they spoke about brain hemispheres and I cannot seem to remember or find that episode so I can't credit the neuroscientist that he was speaking with unfortunately um, so I'll just give credit to Jordan Peterson for that one. So how today's episode is going to go is first I'm going to go over some some cases of people who have had this brain injury savant syndrome and what it has done in their lives and then we're going to kind of jump into why this may be happening, which is really the big question. So Jason Padgett was a case in 2002. He was a futon salesman who was just a big partier. He's a jock, apparently, from what everybody said about him. He just liked to kind of get down. And he was at a karaoke bar, and he came out, and he got robbed, and he got jumped, and he got his head busted in pretty good. Well, afterwards, he developed OCD to the point where he had to wash his hands compulsively like 20 times a day. But not long after that, he started to be fascinated and just obsessed with fractals. And if you don't know what fractals are, fractals are essentially breaking math down into repetitive visual patterns. And he started drawing these diagrams and these geometric shapes. And he didn't even really know what was going on until he um, was drawing one of these and a physicist saw his drawing. And he was like, holy shit, do you know what you're doing there? You need to go take a math class. So he did, he went and took a math class and he ended up becoming kind of a mathematical savant. And he's one of the few peoples in the entire world who can draw fractals. Fractals can be created uh, by computer programs, but it's very difficult for a person to draw them. So he was able to do that even though beforehand he was not necessarily mathematically inclined. He also, on the negative side of things, developed synesthesia, where your wiring in your brain starts to cross and mix senses. So um, visuals can be painful or touch can have a taste and things kind of get messed up in your brain. So of course there was that negative aspect as well, along with his OCD that he had. But a pretty interesting case in the fact that he was just opened up his mind to mathematics all of a sudden. Orlando Sorrell is another case. He was a 10-year-old boy who was hit with a baseball and he had bad headaches for a long time afterwards. But... Right after that, he got calendar calculation. So somebody could ask him a date, they could say January 3rd, 2002, and he could recall the event right down to the second, say January 3rd, 2002 at four o'clock, I was at grandma's house, it was raining outside, the temperature was cool, um, there was this song playing, and was able to essentially have like a photographical memory when it comes to uh, dates and times. Kind of on a side note, I had a janitor in high school who was a little bit mentally slow. He was a really nice guy. And that was something that he could do. We would go up to him and we'd say, you know, hey, June 3rd, 1942. And he would just say, Tuesday. And we would look it up and he would always he would always know exactly what that day was and he could do it automatically. It was kind of a thing around school where people would go up and ask him that because it was, he was right every single time. Um, so I think that kind of plays into this a little bit and we'll get into more about how, how that may correlate with people who have not just TBIs and, and brain injuries, but that are also born with different parts of their brain that may work just a little bit differently.
So Alonzo Clement is another case, and he was a man who had a bad fall as a kid, and then afterwards, he'd obviously hit his head. Afterwards, he could see animals on TV and just sculpt them like perfectly accurately, and he became a world-renowned sculptor. Unfortunately, um, on the other side of that, he ended up having an IQ of about 40 or 50, but his sculpting skills, he was able to you know, represent anything that he sees visually just perfectly uh, with his hands. So it kind of unlocked that latent ability in him. Then we have Ken Waters. He was in a forklift accident and was in a wheelchair for 19 years. And then in 2005, he had a cerebral hemorrhage from a stroke. He had to go through, spe uh, through speech therapy. Apparently I need speech therapy. And he had partial paralysis but he started to become very artistic and started making digital images and develop software. And he started selling his images online. Well, this was seen and picked up by EA, you know, the gaming giant like EA and EA Sports. And since then he's worked as an animator for EA. So it actually changed his life and built him a career. He actually says that it's the biggest gift that was ever given to him. And we have Dr. Ann Adams. She was a trained scientist and later on in life, she just dropped science to start making art. Her art was very scientific. She would make, um, you know, not fractals like I was talking about before, but she would make art in patterns and um, just this beautiful scientific art. Well, it was later found out that she had frontotemporal dementia, which damages the frontal and temporal lobes. She actually died in 2007 from it, unfortunately. But while she was alive, she was also obsessed with composer Ravel, and she had always been trying to translate his music into art. So she became obsessed with art and music and had this huge life change where she went from being a scientist, being somebody who's, you know, very left brain oriented, to living her life out on the artistic side. It's very, very interesting. We also have Sandy Allen, who is a medical school student. She was three years in and she got a malignant tumor on her left temporal uh, lobe that needed surgery. After that, she also became very artistic and started making collages everywhere in her house and kind of surrounded herself with collages. This one's interesting though, because her sister and her mother, uh, people in her family are also very artistic. So that might play into the uh, idea we'll talk about that she kind of already had an in inherent artistic ability that was almost unlocked by this damage to her left temporal lobe. The next one is Kim Peek. He was actually the inspiration for the movie Rain Man, the character played by Dustin Hoffman. Now in Rain Man, they made him out to be autistic, um, but it's thought that he wasn't actually autistic, but he suffered from FG syndrome, which is, a which is a genetic disorder that caused damage to his corpus callosum, which is the little piece of your brain, um, little, little nerve center that connects your left side and right side of your brain. We're going to get into why that's important here pretty soon. But he was able to do a lot of really amazing things when it came to numbers, like no zip codes off the top of his head and remember dates down to the second like that like like Orlando Sorrell that I was talking about earlier he also had a photographical memory that was amazing in a lot of different ways as well like he memorized about 12,000 books and re could recite lines from them like word for word from any page um it 
took him about eight seconds to read a page and he could memorize a book in about a half an hour but he'd read them in, in a different way than we read them because he could read two pages at a time, one with each eye, because his corpus callosum was severed and he could use both sides of his brain independently, which again we'll get into in a little when we talk about split brain syndrome. And then last up on the list, we have Daniel Tammet. He was an epileptic as a child, and as he grew older, he developed these amazing abilities. Um, I, I watched a video of him actually where he learned Icelandic in seven days. And I'm actually currently learning Icelandic, and I'll tell you what, it is more than a seven-day job. It is a very, very difficult language to learn. And he had already learned seven other languages. You can find this video on him if you just Google Daniel Tammet. And uh, he went over to Iceland, and to prove this, he had no prior knowledge of, of the language, no speaking knowledge of the language, and they put him with a language coach and he just started picking up instantaneously and then at the end of the seven days he does an interview with somebody where they have a conversation in Icelandic and it is it's amazing so he says he started seeing numbers as shapes and colors after he had a particularly bad epileptic fit when he was younger um, but he, he was able to make incredible complex calculations almost instantly and he actually broke the record for memorizing the digits of pi in 2004 and he was able to recall 22,514 numbers consecutively and accurately from the number pi in a five-hour term so obviously a very amazing photographical memory um, I don't even know if I could just sit down and rattle off 22,000 numbers so the fact that he could look at that memorize it and then recall them accurately is pretty damn amazing so those are just some cases. There's about 90 cases worldwide, but those are the, some of the ones that I thought were interesting. That would kind of be a good baseline of what this syndrome looks like in people who acquire it. So now we got to get to the big question of what the fuck is going on here. And I think to do that, first we need to kind of understand how the hemispheres of your brain work. So we kind of tend to think of the brain as just this one big thing that we have in our head that does all of our thinking for us. But Dr. Roger W. Sperry of California Institute of Technology won the Nobel Prize in 1981 for showing that hemispheres aren't identical. They're not the same and they perform different functions. He did this by studying epileptics with grand mal seizures that cause feedback loops from the two hemispheres. And a lot of the time these were becoming life-threatening. So he took severe measures and he actually severed the corpus callosum. The corpus callosum is the part that connects your two hemispheres and lets them communicate with each other. Up until this point, the only time that we could really study one hemisphere on somebody separately from the other is if somebody had a stroke on one side of their brain. And there's a lot of really interesting things that happen depending on which side of your brain the, the stroke affects. So I know that in, in some cases, people will get body disassociation depending on what side of their brain is affected, where you can tell them, you know, go wash your hands. And they'll say, well, I don't have hands. And then you'll say, well, I mean, your hands are right there. Go wash your hands. And even though they're looking at them, even though they know logically that they have hands, they, they can't fathom the fact that they have hands because the logical side of their brain is kind of shut down. So it's very interesting. So up until that point, um, up until Roger Sperry essentially snipped the connection between the two sides of people's brains, the only time that we could see how the hemispheres worked is in somebody who only had one working. 
but he had a unique advantage where he was able to see each side of the brain work independently in the same person. So he did a lot of studies concerning that and found a lot of interesting things. Essentially what it comes down to, and this is a very uh, basic overview of how it works, but our minds are taking in like 11 million bits of data every single second. But our conscious mind's only able to process about 40 to 50 bits of data a second. So as you look around your room or as you're driving down the road, you're taking in so much sensory data. You're taking in the feeling, the heat, the sounds. You know, we, we tend to look at things and say, oh, well, you know, that's a car. Well, that car is not just a car. It's tires, it's metal, it's paint, it's windows, it's glass, there's scratches on it. There's all these things that are coming to our mind just getting bombarded. And it's too much for our mind to be able to uh, reason with instantaneously. And that can be a huge disadvantage, you know, in a lot of situations. So if you're walking through the jungle and all of a sudden a tiger jumps out at you and you have to look at it and say, well, it's, it's got hair on it and those teeth, you know, they're kind of white, but kind of yellow. And you start breaking everything down. Well, that tiger's going to jump on you and eat you, right? So your brain has developed a way essentially to streamline that data. So you look at it, you say, shit, tiger, I'm out of here. So what we found happens is that when we take all this information, it goes into our right brain. And our right brain takes all that info and kind of weeds through it and decides what's the most important for you in your current situation. And then it passes it through your corpus callosum over to the left side of your brain. The left side of your brain is your conscious thinking side of your brain. That's what's responsible for talking, for your verbalization, um, and for your logical thinking. And it's also the side of your brain that makes the decisions. So it's kind of the boss of your brain. So if I'm looking around the room that I'm sitting in right now, and I can see the chair across my room, I call it a chair because that's what my left side of my brain has decided that it's going to tell me. It's going to say, Luke, that's a chair over there. It's not going to say, Luke, that's a piece of wood that was then cut apart into all these little pieces and then glued together and then sanded and the paint. It's not going to break all that down, but I know all that information. I still have all that information. I also have the information about the temperature in the room right now and the um, colors and the feeling of the chair that I'm sitting in, the pencil in my hand. So I, I have all this information that's in my right side of my brain, but then my left side of the brain says, no, Luke, what you're going to look at right now, that is a chair and it's going to streamline it for me. So kind of an easy summary of that, a, a way to think about it is that the left side of our brain is responsible for the analytical and logical side and the verbal side of things. And then our right side is responsible for our holistic and artistic side of things. Interesting kind of little side note, in his podcast, Jordan Peterson talks about um, the fact that going out in nature is actually very beneficial for us health-wise. And I'd heard that a lot before I've heard that spending 20 minutes in nature is, you know, about the same as doing like 30 minutes in the gym. And I've always wondered why, you know, is it the, the smells or is it the fact that you're, you know, closer to maybe different vibrational states or something like that. And even over in Japan, they have now it's uh, these little nature parks where you can go and take turns where you get a little spot and a bench surrounded by woods to yourself and you can go sit there for like 15 minutes on your lunch break because they know that there's beneficial health uh, or health benefits to it. 
Well, Jordan Peterson talks about it, and he says that one of the big reasons that they're finding out is is that the world we build, especially in urban environments, is meant to be streamlined for us, right? We make all cars look pretty much the same. I mean, there's a little bit of variances, but they're pretty much the same. Buildings look pretty much the same. Stop signs look the same. And that's for a good purpose. You know, as you're driving down the road, if every car looked dramatically different, your mind would have to say, what is that? You know, what is that? What is that building right there? And before long, you're going to end up getting hit by a car. So we've kind of developed society around the fact that we need to streamline things so that as you're driving your brain can recognize things real quick so we have these very smooth and generic textures but then when we go out into nature everything's so varied you know the bark on the tree has uh, isn't smooth obviously it has a lot of texture and variation to it you have all these different rocks and and smells and everything so you're activating parts of your brain that kind of get ignored when you're in the city or in urban environments and so it's it's allowing us to use different processing centers in our brain which is obviously very important because it translates into really big health benefits so i, I found that kind of interesting but getting back to dr roger perry what he found is that at first you know people seemed pretty normal after he uh, snipped their corpus callosum but after a little while, I started to notice these really strange uh, variations in their personality. And it was almost like the right side of your brain kind of had a will of its own. So we had, they almost became these dual personalities in a lot of senses. So our right side of our brain controls the left half of our body. And the left half of our brain controls the right side of our body. And so what he found with a lot of patients is they would report really interesting things. Like with one man, he went to hug his wife and his left hand, which is controlled by the right side of your brain, actually ended up punching her. So probably somewhere, you know, subconsciously um, in the right side of his brain, he was probably angry with her about something. And so his left hand just acted that out. Another woman would go shopping and she would go to pick out a dress with her right hand and then she would look over and her left hand would actually be picking out a completely different outfit. It would be um, choosing something without her her knowledge because the left side of our brain is where you know our, our cognitive recognition comes through. So that's where she was looking at you know this beautiful pink dress and saying this is what I want but then her subconscious was saying no you actually want this blue jumpsuit over here and started grabbing it you know. Um, and then there was one other guy who he was actually afraid to sleep at night because he thought his left hand was going to strangle him to death. So this has actually become known as Dr. Strangelove syndrome from the old movie, uh, from the scene in there where the guys, you know, left hand and right hand are kind of fighting, are kind of fighting each other. So it's, it's a very interesting thing that happens and it's like your subconscious, which is more so located in your right hemisphere is kind of kind of has its own agenda and has its own will and is kind of taking over. So building on this research, Dr. Michael Gazaniga from University of California, Santa Barbara, who's an authority on split brain syndrome, um, started doing a lot of experimentation and a lot of research. One of the things he did is he would have people wear glasses with different pictures on each side and then he would ask them questions. So since your right side brain controls the left half of your body and vice versa, when you show something just to your left eye, it goes into your right brain. 
Um, and then your right eye goes into your left brain. So he was able to ask them questions and see what kind of answers and see if there was variation in answers depending on which side of the brain he was asking. But the hard part about that is the left side of your brain is the one that does the talking. So he had to develop a way to be able to communicate with the right side of the brain. So he actually did that by using Scrabble um, letters and letting people use their left hand to spell things out with Scrabble letters. So he could ask the right side of the brain with those Scrabble letters and then the left side of the brain with um, you know, verbal communication. And one of the things he asked these subjects was, what do you want to do after college? One guy told him that he wanted to be a draftsman. So the left side of his brain, you know, his logical side, said that when I get done with college, I want to go on to be a draftsman. That's what I'm studying for. But then when he asked the right side of the brain using the Scrabble letters, it spelled out the word auto racer. So somewhere deep down in his subconscious, what he really wanted to do was to, um, what he really wanted to do was essentially be in NASCAR. So he had this, this dormant, um, want and need built into him that he didn't even recognize, which kind of begs the question, how many of us have that, you know, getting down to getting down to what we really want. In another really interesting test, he showed pictures of a banana to just the right side of the brain. So he showed it to the left eye only. And the people wouldn't consciously know that they had seen a picture of a banana, right? Because it didn't make it into the left side of their logical brain. He would then give them a piece of paper and a pencil in their left hand and say, draw any picture you want, any picture in the world. And they would end up drawing a banana. And then he would ask them, well, why did you draw a banana? Well, since they logically didn't understand that they had seen a picture of it, their left side of their brain would start to kind of try to rationalize it and make excuses. So they'd say things like, well, I'm not very good at drawing with my left hand and banana is an easy thing to draw because I get to pull down this way and do this. And they would make these elaborate excuses for why they drew that picture, not knowing that they had just seen that picture of a banana. So kind of what he found out is that, you know, our, our right side of our brain is taking in all this information and then not only is it deciding what needs to get passed to our left side, but then our left side takes all this and it tries to, and it tries to rationalize everything that it's seeing and that it knows. So it's it can be almost too logical and start kind of making things up a little bit in an attempt to rationalize it. So then there was neurologist V.S. Ramachandran, and he had a patient who was a split brain patient, and his left brain when he was asked if he was religious, his left brain said that he was a believer in God. And then his right brain, when asked, actually said he was an atheist, which is really interesting that there can be that much of a conflict between the two. Like, can you have one half of your brain that's Democrat and one half that's Republican? Can you have one half that's straight and one half that's gay? I mean, there's these, these huge questions that get opened up by this. And we're really still not anywhere close to fully understanding the brain, but this is a this is a huge step to going into uh, seeing the brain holistically and how it all works together. So that's just kind of a little bit of an overview of how the two sides of our brains work. So going back to the topic of the day with this brain injury savant syndrome, what happens invariably with these patients is that they have an injury to the left anterior temporal lobe of their brain and then the right 
compensates for it. And your left anterior temporal lobe, again, is that place that's responsible for speech and responsible for logic and kind of making sense of the world and making those decisions. So it seems that when we have damage to the part of our brains that um, takes everything and, and looks at it logically and kind of streamlines everything and compresses it into something that we can uh, deal with in the moment, we allow the other side of our brain that has all this data in it to be able to kind of run unchecked without the, the boss side of our brain telling it what to do. So Dr. Bruce Miller, MD, who's the co-director of University of California, San Francisco Memory and Aging Center, he treats Alzheimer's patients. In the mid-90s, the son of one of his patients um, came in and showed that his dad, who had been a businessman his whole life, had acquired these amazing painting skills after his Alzheimer was getting worse and worse and worse. So he had never been a painter or artistic really in his life, but the more his his logical side of his brain degenerated, the more his painting abilities got up. So by the time he had lost like all social skill and he became verbally repetitive, he would change his clothes in public, kind of go crazy. Uh, he would be insulting strangers, he would shoplift. But at the same time, he's winning medals at local art shows for how good his art was becoming. So this really intrigued Dr. Miller, and so we started looking into it more. And by 2000, he had, he had identified 12 other patients. And what he saw is that as your language and your restraint and your social etiquette went down, your artistic abilities went up. Uh, one of his cases, there was a five-year-old who could take an Etch-A-Sketch and just make an intricate scene from memory of anything he had seen. So when he checked out his brain, he saw that he had abnormal activity in his left anterior temporal lobe. Again, going back to that same region that's kind of being blocked off. So Dr. Bruce Miller started looking for uh, neural connections and, and seeing what exactly was going on here. And what he kind of came up with is that your temporal lobe on your left side was inhibiting your latent artistic abilities on your right side. So it was almost being too much in check. It was being too rational and not allowing these artistic abilities that were already buried deep down inside of you somewhere to be able to come out. So working along those same lines, Dr. Alan Snyder, who is a neuroscientist at the University of Sydney, in 2012 did an experiment where he gave 28 volunteers a geometric puzzle that had been stumping people for 50 years. Um, I tried this puzzle, it's a pretty simple puzzle, but it's <laughs> I can't figure it out, it's pretty hard. So the puzzle is to connect nine dots that are three rows of three using four straight lines without retracing or lifting a pen. So if you draw three dots, you know, one, two, three across, and then one row down, one, two, three across, one, two, three across, so you have nine dots total. You have to connect all those dots with only using four lines, but never lifting your pen up and no, never retracing a line. So with those 28 volunteers that he had, there was zero success. Nobody could do it. So he took electrodes and he actually immobilized the left anterior lobe of their brain and then he stimulated the right brain in the parts that um, are responsible for more creativity and all of a sudden 40 percent of the people just had like instant success and just figured out the puzzle so it's like their brains already knew how to solve the puzzle but by logically trying to think about it they were blocking themselves from being able to to access that ability. So Alan Snyder said that 
By doing that, it allows them to access the raw sensory data that is normally off limits. So the way to think about it is like when you hear music, you hear a song, right? You might hear, you know, the beat a little bit and the vocals and stuff, but generally you just hear a song. But a savant, a extraordinary composer, is going to hear all these little tiny notes and all these different and all the different chords and all the different, you know, music structure that's involved in that because it's not actually a song. It is hundreds of little pieces that are put together. So unless we've trained ourselves to be able to do that and and break that into all those little pieces and become an expert in something or unless something happens to us to uh, unlock that latent ability essentially um our mind wants to streamline things as much as possible and it wants to conserve energy and give us the most efficient picture of the world around us at all times so by taking that away you can kind of see the big picture so with the people that acquire you know great painting ability all of a sudden you know if you were to look at a picture of a horse unless you are very artistically talented which i'm definitely not when it comes to drawing and painting but if i look at a picture of a horse I'm going to say, okay, that's a horse. And if I try to draw it, I'm going to say, okay, well, it's kind of brown and here's the hooves. And I would draw this very rudimentary, ugly picture of a horse. Um, I've tried it before. <laughs> They're never good. But somebody who isn't blocked off by the logical side, compressing all that into a singular picture, isn't going to see a horse. They're going to see every little hair. They're going to see the glimmer of light in the horse's eye and they're going to see you know the the fly that's sitting on the horse's back and all these little tiny pieces of this data that have been compressed so these people as their their logical side of their brain and their left frontal lobe starts to disintegrate or gets damaged all of a sudden they're not having that compression and so these big essentially wide strokes of painting and painting a horse turns into all these little tiny pieces. And that's why their artistic talents seem to just kind of skyrocket. So what about these people like the first guy that I mentioned, Derek Amato, who never had any musical training or anything, never had uh, these little pieces of data to unlock in his other side of his mind, but then sustain a brain injury and then are able to all of a sudden have this ability with no prior knowledge of it at all well that's kind of the big question um and there's some some ideas around that so dr daryl treffert of the university of wisconsin school of medicine thinks that we all come with these abilities kind of factory installed because of factory installed software in our brain um, that we all have these abilities kind of built into us already and that they're all kind of waiting to get out. And the ability that gets out when these brain injuries occur depends on the exact location of the injury. So that kind of begs the question of, okay, so where does all of these abilities come from? Um, is it a genetic thing? Maybe Derek Amato, maybe six generations back, he had somebody in his family that was very musically inclined. And so that got passed down through his DNA and was a part of his subconscious brain essentially that he let out or is it just that everybody's born with these exact same abilities like every person's a great composer and every person's a magnificent artist and 
that we all have essentially these same things in our brain um, until they get unlocked. I think that's a little bit harder for me to believe, but I mean, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not a neuroscientist. I'm doing a podcast. So that may be the case as well. Um, what makes more sense to me is that we don't, we're not all necessarily born with all these inherent abilities in our, in our right hemisphere, but we're picking up so much data all the time, all around us that we're all picking up so many different things. So like in the case of Derek Motto, again, he at some point in his life had seen a music sheet and he had heard compositions and he had seen a movie about Mozart or whatever, but all that information is getting packed into his, his right hemisphere, but his left temporal lobe has decided that it wasn't pertinent to his life. So it never really made its way into his, into his conscious life because there, it was unnecessary, but it was still already in there, but not because it was something that he inherently had, but little bits of data that he had picked up all along the way. And then going into that bits of data being picked up thing, um, you know, last week I had an interview with remote viewer Yana Rogue. We talked about the idea of universal consciousness and that there, that any thought or any event that happens essentially turns into data and gets put out into the the world or the universe or whatever you want to call it around us and that we have access to those through our subconscious and that's kind of how remote viewing works so it's almost like um you know everything's just sitting out there in a pool and then as we as we start to understand things and see things we're kind of reaching out and grabbing them from our subconscious mind but our left temporal lobe, our logical side, is blocking us from doing that. So with remote viewing, as Yana explains, um, it's it's kind of the process of learning to quickly shut down your conscious mind, reach into your subconscious, grab a little bit of data, and then translate it into your conscious, and then um, take that and then decipher it to get a full picture. So maybe with these people, if that data is just kind of out there floating around us in the subconscious uh, universal consciousness, essentially, by blocking off this temporal lobe that's that's guiding us and making all of our decisions, we're allowing just direct access to that that source. Be really interesting to get somebody who has this syndrome and see what would happen if they trained with with remote viewers like Yanaro, and uh, you know see what the result of that would be. So that's about all I got on this. Um, I'll link the sources that I use to get to this so you guys can read the articles if you'd like. I highly, highly recommend uh, reading Dr. Michio Kaku's book, The Future of the Mind. It covers so many different things. This was just a very small blip on it when he was talking about the different hemispheres of the brain, but he covers a lot of really interesting stuff in that. But I hope I gave you kind of a good overview of, of what this is and maybe kind of sparked some ideas in your mind and uh, that you can you can look into more. You know, me doing this podcast, I'm never going to claim that I know everything about anything or really anything about anything. All I can do is uh, find topics that I find interesting and then present them to you so that you guys can get interested in them, get interested in them as well and then go out and research them for yourself. So, um, yeah, I hope that you enjoyed this talk and that you go out there and start figuring out what the heck's going on here. 
perhaps if we can figure out exactly how this works and how our subconscious minds are able to um, connect with these latent abilities, we can start to develop ways to access them without having damage to our frontal lobes. I think this ties in very well with the idea of the flow state. Um, and, you know, when people who are very good at a certain sport or music or something like that, they talk about kind of shutting off their conscious mind and just getting into what's called the flow state. But I, I think that this ties in uh, very much into that as well. I know that this gives me a lot of hope. <laughs> uh, if you guys don't know me personally, um, aside from doing this podcast all day, every day now, uh, I have a couple other jobs, and one of them is a martial arts instructor, and I've been a competitive kickboxer and and uh, tie fighter and stuff for quite a while now. Um, so I've been I've been hitting the head plenty, and you know, with, with most people being right-handed, the place you get hit the most is the left side of the head. So. You know, concussions are never good, and I wouldn't recommend anybody get them, but maybe one of these days, if it's a little too much for me, I'll become a musical genius or something to compensate for it. But uh, hopefully that never happens. But I hope you guys really enjoyed this, and again, you know, the biggest thing I can ask you right now is just spread the word if you're liking this podcast. Tell your friends about it. Um, you know, get my, get my listeners up so that I can continue to do this. So thank you, and the next episode out this Friday will be another bit-a-sode. So same thing, but a lot shorter. So be looking out for that. Thanks, everybody.